In a small town perched on the twin peaks of a craggy peninsula jutting into the northern Aegean, exactly 24 centuries ago, a baby boy was born. His mother, who came from Chalcis, now Chalcida, much further south in Greece near Athens, was called Festus. His father was a doctor called Nicomachus. And on the tenth day after the baby's birth, Nicomachus would have invited his relatives and closest friends to the party at which he formally acknowledged the baby as his son and announced his commitment to raising him as a free-born citizen. He'll have performed the customary ritual of running naked around the domestic hearth, cradling the baby to seal this promise. All you dads out there, I bet, didn't do that. And he would have also announced the baby's name, Aristotelis, which we shorten in English to Aristotle. And the Aristo element in the name means best, and the telos, teles ending, means bringing to completion or fulfilment. Now, Aristotle was, coincidentally, given a name which anticipated his most revolutionary idea that everything and everyone has a purpose or end, a, a telos, and a potentiality, a dunamis, dynamis, dynamite, which they may or may not fulfil, depending on how well they're brought up. Now, Aristotle grew up in Stagora to magnificently realise his own vast potential, which happened to be intellectual. There's scarcely an area of knowledge, whether in material sciences or humanities, which he did not significantly advance. I personally regard him as the greatest intellectual of all time. He was a walking encyclopedia. He wrote scores of treatises on numerous topics. He laid all the foundations of logic and systematic argumentation. But he would have been the first to point out that his potential as a human, which happened to be academic rather than, for example, practical, musical, or political, was provided with everything it needed to mature. He was born into a relatively prosperous family, and it also seems to have been a loving one. He remained close to his sister, commissioned a portrait of his mother from the excellent painter Protogenes to remember her by, and took scrupulous care of his surviving relatives in his will, which we're lucky enough to have. As a physician, Aristotle's father, Nicomachus, would have been able to introduce the boy to the most advanced scientific ideas and methods known to the Greeks. Curiosity about life, living organisms, plants, humans, and other animals was to underlie almost everything Aristotle ever achieved. Now, in the ancient Greek world, medicine was a hereditary profession. Aristotle could have followed in his father's footsteps and was probably expected to. And he remained convinced throughout his life that medicine and philosophy were affiliated. And the concept of human potentiality, whether in physical health or intellectual advancement, could well have been a topic which Nicomachus discussed with his little son as they walked, gathering medicinal plants in the woods which stretched inland um, into Kalkiviki from Stagora. And perhaps the topic arose when Nicomachus began one of those conversations like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Aristotle's ancestry will also have given him ambition and aspiration through the idea that he had a family reputation to maintain. Nicomachus was one of a long line of doctors 
And they actually claim descent from Machaon, one of the Greeks' legendary healers at Troy. He's an Iliad. And Machaon was the son of Asclepius, no less, um, the son of Apollo, the god of medicine. And Asclepius had been given special medicinal herbs from Chiron, the original centaur doctor himself. Aristotle's father also wrote six books about medicine and on natural philosophy, which will have set an example to his clever son that writing down the results of brain work was a constructive thing to do. And Aristotle certainly immersed himself in the treatises by the 5th century doctor Hippocrates, whom he admired and whom I'm going to talk about next year. Now, Dr. Nicomachus seems to have excelled at his profession. At any rate, he was hired as personal physician by the then king of Macedon, Amyntas III. In ancient Greek, male children passed from the women's quarters to be looked after by their male relatives and tutors around the age of seven. And Aristotle's father may well, I'm sure he did, have taken his son to the dazzling court at Pella when he went to treat members of the royal family. Perhaps they stayed there for days at a time, allowing the quick-witted boy to see at first hand the elegant buildings and recreational activities of the rich and powerful Macedonians. And in later life, Aristotle remained deeply loyal to that little free hometown of Stagira. In 348, the then king of Macedon, the terrifying Philip II, conquered it and destroyed some of its buildings. And Philip enslaved all the surviving inhabitants. But he relented when Aristotle begged him to rebuild it and restore the citizens' freedom. And Stagger today is a beautiful archaeological site. Please go, please go to Thessaloniki and take the bus to Stagera. It's off the beaten track. There's hardly any tourists there. And in Aristotle's childhood, it was surrounded by a high, thick fortification wall, cunningly built and with marble. And it's very little surprise that architecture and construction work are two of his favourite images in his philosophy. You can see the marble colonnade where uh, the Stagorites, including Aristotle's father, gathered for debate. There's a complex of shops where we can imagine the young Aristotle watching the merchants engaged in debate. And you can even see the marble lintel of the gate he'll have entered the town by. And it's got a boar on it, B-O-A-R, which um, was the symbol of Stagora on its coins. There's lots of fragments of pottery on display at the Polygyrus Museum, showing exactly the kind of objects he would have handled as a boy. And pottery is also a very important image in his philosophy. But he grew up to be a naturalist as well as a philosopher. His childhood environment provided all the stimuli he needed to grow up to fulfil his potential. In his philosophy, he remembers, for example, the cows of Tyrone in Chalcidiki. Um, he remembers the boars of Mount Athos as bigger and bolder than those near the sea because they're not lowland, and remembers many other things about the beautiful place in northern Greece where he grew up. But unfortunately, his child was disrupted when both his mother and father died when he was about 13. We don't know exactly what happened to him, but he was certainly too young to exert 
much influence over his fate. The mid-teens of this incredibly intellectual son of the prematurely deceased physician, Nicomachus, was spent watching adults, whom he probably didn't fully trust, make executive decisions about his future. And this was against a dangerous backdrop of ever-increasing military strife in the Greek-speaking world. And I think it's to those years that we can trace his profound interest in ethics, how people make decisions to act or not to act, how to behave, how to behave in politics. His thinking about ethics evolved and grew ever more sophisticated and nuanced over the course of his eventful life. But it's useful, um, I think, to convey a sense of the ethical quagmire which he witnessed and survived in his teens. He's an inspiring example of someone who succeeded in behaving ethically in a time and a place where standards of moral conduct were shockingly low. He turned the problem into an opportunity and actually spent most of his life refining his uh, views on human behaviour and arguing that actually virtue, trying to be a good person, is what will make you happy. Now, a man named Proxenus welcomed this brilliant orphan into his family and took charge of his education. Adoptive dance, great. Proxenus was married to Aristotle's older sister, and um, he was a citizen of Atanius, one of several important Greek cities in northwest Asia Minor, just opposite the island of Lesbos. But all eyes politically at this time were on the rising kingdom of Macedon. In 370, when Aristotle was 14, the death of King Amyntas brought huge instability to the region. He must have been struck by the ease with which Amyntas's relatively calm autocracy turned into a murderous cesspool of infighting. Amyntas was succeeded by his son Alexander, who was very young, and affairs descended into chaos. The boy, King Alexander, was assassinated by order of a scheming aristocrat named Ptolemy, who was having an affair with his, uh, Amyntas's widow, and Ptolemy was then appointed regent. This is par for the course in Macedon. So the aristocratic but stable kingdom of Amyntas turned into a textbook, vice-ridden royal court, where power struggles, murder, and I'm sure paranoia marked every relationship. And poor young Aristotle must have watched this crisis with trepidation. With the murderous regent Ptolemy in power, he must have been incredibly relieved to go to relatively peaceful Athens and enrol in Plato's academy at 17. The most brilliant student Plato had ever taught, Aristotle threw himself into every branch of study available, as well as several in which Plato had little interest, especially national, natural sciences and astronomy. Aristotle was the first person we know of in history to have noticed that the moon must be closer than the planet Mars, which he called Aries, because in 357, at Plato's Academy, he saw the moon move in front of the planet Mars, and he wrote it down. This is also reason to think he had excellent eyesight. <laughs> Athens was a colourful, bustling hive of activity, and he loved it. He'll have had more access to than ever before was theatre, poetry, musical entertainment. And we can imagine him walking at dawn with Plato and other colleagues to attend the tragedies and comedies in the city sanctuaries and theatre of Dionysus. 
and excitedly analysing them as they strode home to the academy at nightfall. But after two apparently very happy decades in democratic Athens, studying as a bachelor member of the academy, soon promoted, I think, to sort of fellow teacher, in 348, he faced a crisis. His teacher, Plato, died in his 82nd year. And although Aristotle was way Plato's most stellar student, he was not named Plato's successor. The academy was placed in charge of the dull philosopher Speusippus. Anybody ever heard of Speusippus? Um, and Aristotle often criticizes Speusippus' ideas, which anticipated those of the Epicureans. Speusippus believed, for example, that pleasure was the highest good, a proposal that Aristotle thought preposterous, um, and that the ideal life was free from disturbance of any kind, including getting involved in politics. But he had two major advantages on the career ladder over Aristotle. He was Plato's nephew, and he was Athenian. A major political event that same year added to Aristotle's sense that he no longer belonged in Athens. Philip of Macedon, the dreaded one-eyed tyrant, after years of flexing his muscles across northern Greece, set his sights on absorbing into his growing empire the city of Olynthos, which Athens was supporting, which was very near Stagora. Anyone from that part of Greece, especially a man whose father had worked in the Macedonian court, would have felt very vulnerable. There were even rumours that he'd been involved with the conspiracy to betray Olynthos to Philip, which I don't believe for a word. We don't know how far he felt spurned by the Academy's preference for the mediocre Speusippus. I can imagine he was not pleased. Perhaps his own intellectual differences were so apparent, though, that he could never have been chosen. But he must have recognised that a light had gone out of the world. He adored Plato, and he must have felt disappointment and envy. He knew it was time to move on. This is where things get very exciting. The friendship of a fellow student in Athens came to centre place. Man helped him, Hermias, the ruler of a kingdom based again in northwest Asia Minor, Atana or Atanus and Assos. Again, if you can get there, please do. It is the most stunning sight. That is Lesbos, the island. This is the corner of Turkey just opposite. It has a Doric 6th century temple of Athena, which will have reminded Aristotle of the Parthenon. And it's in far better nick than most Greek sites because it's in Turkey. It's now a very tragic place. A lot of people have tried to swim that particular route and it's full of all kinds of military vessels. But Aristotle loved it there. He accepted Hermias's invitation. He sealed the friendship by marrying Hermias's daughter or niece Pythias, who sadly died soon after. Hermias was fascinated by philosophy. Those were the days when tyrants were actually admiring of intellectual work. He was later described by Theophrastus, another close friend of Aristotle, as the ideal student. And he actually invited Aristotle because he thought Aristotle could help him be a good ruler. When he was nearly 40, Aristotle sailed across from Hermias' kingdom um, on the Anatolian mainland to Lesbos. He went there almost certainly on the invitation of um, Theophrastus, his younger colleague, who was a native of Erisos on Lesbos. 
Um, there is on Lesbos an exceptional diversity of natural habitats, supporting an enormous range of plants and animals. More than 1,400 types of flora, including wonderful orchids, species of rhododendron found nowhere else on Earth. The island's woods and glades throb and rustle with the movements of little animals, squirrels, foxes, butterflies, rare bats, grasshoppers, tortoises, striped-necked terrapins, frogs, lizards, snakes, and dragonflies. I have been there. It's a bird spotter's paradise, pink flamingos, grey heron, yellow wagtails. And cutting deep into the long southern coast, you can even see it on the map, is the bay and lagoon of Pira, now called Lake Caloni, where porpoises, seals, and an extraordinary variety of fish, crustacea, and cephalopods, cuttlefish, squid, and octopus, all have their home in the dark blue waters and taste delicious in the local restaurants. Now, more than a century ago, a Scottish polymath called Wentworth Darcy Thompson, in true Aristotelian fashion, an expert in both classics and biology, suggested that the frequency of references to that lagoon in Aristotle's zoological works, he is the father of zoology, as well as of so many other things. This must mean that he conducted a great deal of research into marine life there. And the importance of Lesbos to his science has been celebrated in a really wonderful book by um, Armand Marie Le Roy, Professor of Evolutionary Developmental Biology at Imperial College London. I'm, if you read one book on Aristotle, if you're interested in science, make it that. I love this picture, which is from a 19th century book on Aristotle as a natural scientist walking with Theophrastus on Lesbos. I have to say, however, that I saw no giraffes, lions, or <laughs> elephants, sadly, on Lesbos. Now, Theophrastus was 12 years Aristotle's junior. He's incredibly important in Aristotle's philosophy because the importance of friendship is one of the pillars of his ethics, that you develop your virtue through building great relationships long-term with others. When Aristotle died, he left his own writings to Theophrastus, decreed he should be his successor as head of the Lyceum. None of this messing around with mediocrities getting elected. Both men were polymaths. He worked on moral philosophy and logic, but their great shared passion was the material world. And Theophrastus does end up at the Lyceum with him. He specialised in plants and is often called the father of botany. Aristotle also wrote books, now lost, on botany, but is remembered as the father of zoology. And over the course of his life, he also wrote on astronomy, physics, geology, and geography. Most importantly, as the greatest observer who'd ever lived, and actually Darwin called him that, he was the undisputed originator of our modern scientific view of life, and in particular empirical science, where you use your senses to make records. The story's getting better and better if you're not very young. In 343, after three years there, Aristotle was summoned by Philip to Macedon. When he wanted a world-famous intellectual to teach his precocious son Alexander, the soon-to-be-great, who was already showing promise, there was a front-runner in the field. Aristotle, Plato's most brilliant student, the son of the Macedonian royal family's one-time physician. According to one source, Plutarch, Philip had a special school built for Aristotle at a sanctuary of the nymphs um, at Nieza, which is a beautiful, beautiful site 
um, about 17 kilometers from Pella, another wonderful place to visit on your tour of Aristotle's habitats. And you can actually see remains of the building there. For the years 343 to 2 were relatively peaceful, but things began to change rapidly in 341 to 340. Athenian hostility to Philip was consolidated and made official when the assembly denounced a peace treaty signed in 346. Philip suddenly had to march north to defend Macedonian interests against the Scythians all the way up on the Danube. And for Aristotle, this meant that his comfortable situation as tutor to the junior crown prince in a quiet seminary in the countryside was well and truly over. Um, there are many, many uh, imagined pictures of what happened there. Here's Aristotle teaching uh, Alexander astronomy. This, when you get off any kind of ferry boat at Thessaloniki Port Authority, is the magnificent muron, muron? mural, which the local council commissioned. You can see how big it is, where you have Aristotle teaching Alexander about everything in the natural world, about art, about science, writing, everything. And you can see Bucephalus rearing up in the background. They're very proud of him in northern Greece. They're Aristotle. Um, that's the Lyceum. All right, so he had these wonderful few years. But still now in his mid-teens, Alexander was appointed regent, moved to Pella, found himself at the epicentre of incredible diplomatic and military crises. Aristotle most certainly accompanied him just briefly, and most people assume that his position as tutor now changed to chief advisor. But in Aristotle's own writings, it's astonishing how little the events of his uh, years with Alexander feature. The poet Heinrich Heine expressed the frustration of all of us when he lamented that Aristotle dissected plenty of animals and birds, unfortunately overlooked and failed to study the great beast in front of his nose, whom he had self-educated and who's far more curious than all the rest of the world's menagerie. In fact, he left us completely uninformed about the nature of the youthful king, whose astounding life and deeds still appear wonderful and enigmatic. Who was Alexander, said Heine? What did he want? Was he a madman or a god? Aristotle doesn't tell us. But in 336, Philip was finally assassinated, and Alexander, who was only 20, declared king. Whatever Aristotle had taught Alexander about moderation, virtue, and justice... The young king looked all set to continue the Macedonian tradition of brutal, monarchical authoritarianism and soon developed a reputation for heavy drinking and dissipation. Presumably, he no longer wanted to spend too much time discussing virtue. What was going to happen to our Aristotle? By this stage in his career, he's nearly 50 he must have longed for a more independent lifestyle, which would allow him to complete all the books he'd been working on for years and teach a much wider cross-section of the youth of Greece. He couldn't go back to the academy. Pusippus had recently died, been succeeded by Xenocrates, an even duller philosopher interested in number theory. Aristotle will have been all too aware that the Macedonians were seriously unpopular with the Athenians, if he went back south, he'd be leaving the security of Macedonian protection 
through a volatile democracy which had turned against its best philosophers before. This was the biggest decision of his life. He's 49. He's not young. He'd been in one way or another at the beck and call of others, whether Plato is the head of the academy or his rich royal patrons, Hermias and Philip, since he was a teenager. But his time had come, and he knew it. Aristotle wrote, and he did, that humans arrive at their physical prime in their 30s, their mental not until 49. I have often wondered whether he was thinking of his own moment of critical decision, which took place around his 50th birthday. So he's a great role model for everybody in midlife who thinks they haven't achieved their life's dream yet. As soon as he arrived in Athens, 336, he founded that lyceum. While his former student Alexander was charging around the eastern Mediterranean Asia, changing the political map, Aristotle was changing the moral map of the universe. He did, though, receive regular updates from Alexander's campaign, almost certainly excluding information and samples of flora and fauna. Now, from the external point of view, the Lyceum, like the Academy, and what we know about the uh, Cynic school at Kynosages, it would have been associated with an ancient religious site and function. Parts of the Lyceum were densely wooded, irrigated by channels dug from the Elysis and Eridanus rivers to keep the area verdant and lush. And Theophrastus observes in his wonderful horticultural book on plants that one enormous plane tree in particular sent out roots a distance of 33 cubits, and no doubt they all sat under that great plane tree to talk. The philosophers who assembled at the Lyceum would have seemed to the outside world to be carrying on work similar to bands of priests who attended the divinities traditionally worshipped in these sanctuaries. At Plato's Academy, the original deity had been Athena, the goddess of wisdom, but at the Lyceum, it was Apollo, god of the lyre, prophecy, archery, and medicine. In his particular form, as Apollo Lucios, Lycian Apollo, Lyceum Apollo, so now you know that every lycée in France actually means wolfy place. This meant that both Apollo in his prehistoric form as a wolf and Apollo from Lycia, an area of southwest Anatolia from which his worship arrived amongst the Greeks, were associated. No more suitable divine patron could have been chosen for an institution dedicated to all branches of learning from the cerebral god of poetry, medical science and omniscience which makes him the source of the truest prophecies. But Apollo was also very intimately associated with the nine muses, who were in turn tied to the poetry, which contained all the wisdom of the Greeks before they invented philosophy. Libraries in the ancient world took the form of a museon, or temple of the muses. For example, the famous library at Alexandria, it's where we get the word museum from, but it meant something different. Uh, the Lyceum contained a cult of Hermes, god of communication in its grounds, and a shrine to the muses that housed forever a portrait bust of Aristotle. In his meteorology, he also shows he was very used to studying maps and globes and geographical works, and he had a special stoa in the grounds just to display all these maps of the world. Now, this Lyceum area had long been significant in Athenian civic life. This is the reason he chose it. 
It was the only substantial gymnasium athletics training ground we hear of in Athens in the classical period. It was probably founded as such by Pisistratus, the tyrant who set up the drama competitions in the 6th century, or by Pericles, the great statesman who authorised the building of the Parthenon. But the head of the Athenian army kept his office there, and the wide, flat spaces by the river were used for military exercises and marshalling troops. It was also the place where the Athenian Democratic Assembly met until those gatherings were moved to the Penix Hill in the 5th century. So it has a long importance as a political centre. Aristotle tells himself a story of how a poor beggar went to the Lyceum in the hope that a friendly citizen would give him a mat to sleep on there, and they did. It was a place that even poor vagrants could expect to be treated well. Philosophers had gathered there long before Aristotle. Socrates held meetings there. Plato's dialogue, the Euthydemus, actually takes place at the Lyceum in the presence of a large crowd. Socrates, Coevals, Prodicus and Protagoras all used the Lyceum for debate and teaching in the last third of the fifth century. Rhapsodes, those expert harp-playing reciters who specialised in performing Homeric epics, gave their lessons in the Lyceum, as did Isocrates, the famous professor of rhetoric. But from the moment when Aristotle rented a few rooms there and founded his own institution, presumably with money, he wasn't from a wealthy family, he must have saved that in Macedon. The name of the Lyceum has always been inseparable from Aristotle's, and we happen to know that there was a rebuilding there during his residency, an honorary decree for the Athenian statesman Lycurgus states that the building was replaced, uh, repaired, all the buildings were repaired in the right decade. The Lyceum had its own gardens, where Aristotle's friend Theophrastus created a collection of really interesting plants, and the grounds were large enough for the peripatetic, walking around philosophers to stride as they talked, and also to accommodate the ordinary people who gathered there in the afternoons to, to hear the celebrated philosophers' popular lectures. Images of Lyceum life I have collected include an advert for tomato paste with Aristotle and Theophrastus discussing a tomato plant. Unfortunately, tomatoes did not arrive for <laughs> quite a long time after that, but it's a nice idea. And some of you may remember a magnificent magazine for children called Look and Learn. This is the picture of life in the Lyceum that made me decide to become a classicist in about 1970. Okay. I wanted to be there. I didn't even notice there weren't any women. Just, just who cares? All right. Behind the colonnades were teaching rooms and study areas, as well as an increasing number of papyri. Aristotle must have already amassed a substantial part of his world-famous personal library, which will have formed the nucleus of the research resources available to his students. He often recommends books by name to which his students can refer if they want to take their interest in a topic further. So he says, if you're interested in agriculture, read Caretides of Paros. If you're interested in fruit farming, read Apollodorus of Lemnos. His library was also destined to become the main inspiration behind the great library which the first Macedonian king of Egypt, Ptolemy I, founded at Alexandria with a Lyceum alumnus, Demetrius the Phalarium, as his consultant. 
Aristotle had always said to have been an avid reader. He accumulated a huge collection of, of rolls. He bought all of Boring Spusipus' collection when he died. In his own work, The Topics, Aristotle explicitly writes that it's essential to read all relevant written previous sources, compile notes, assemble previous opinions in order to be able to state and, if necessary, refute them. This is academic practice being established that you have to um, uh, read and um, uh, collate all previous opinions before you can define your own position. In the Nicomachean Ethics, he gives us insight into why he started from received opinion, his famous method, many of which he must have encountered in books. Some views, he says, have been held by many people, others by fewer people but wise ones. He says, it's reasonable to assume that neither view will be mistaken in all respects. You don't chuck out all the previous work, you engage with it, and if necessary, refute it. Now, the very idea of the universal library, the community of full-time scholars cooperating on transdisciplinary research projects, this idea which came to such magnificent fruition at Alexandria and has subsequently been imitated in thousands of colleges and learned institutions the world over, including, of course, Gresham, all of this can be traced to Aristotle's visionary lyceum. He encouraged its members to conduct collaborative research projects in every branch of knowledge, always to consult previous authorities. Several important works by his sort of PhD students have survived, revealing how painstakingly these methods were absorbed and applied to a vast range of topics, from music, mechanics, and diving technology to psychology and aesthetics. Many of those projects had direct public and civic applications and often preserved invaluable information from ancient archives for us. So the Constitution of Athens, for example, researched and written by a peripatetic, not Aristotle, but clearly one of his, his people, had um, uh, using methods very similar to Aristotle's comparative discussion of constitution in the politics, was found on a papyrus in the late 19th century, and it transformed our understanding of the workings of the Athenian Council and Democratic Assembly. Um, it's in the British Library. I'm very delighted that uh, it was actually part of it was used as the cover for my Aristotle's way. Uh, that particular, you can see the bit with the big tooth mark in it was chosen by the American publishers for the cover. The um, text was written under his supervision, I think. In fact, his students wrote no fewer than 170 histories of individual city-states. Uh, an he put history, as well as constitution constitutional theory and local history, on an unprecedentedly rigorous scientific level. Now, his achievement in finally separating himself from Macedonian patronage, becoming his own man and running his own show, is all the more impressive because he was not young when he got there. His determination to realise his potential um, is an example to everyone whose dreams have been frustrated early in life. Although he'd, of course, been reading, investigated, thinking, theorising and debating since his teens, most scholars think it was only in these golden years, golden 12 years of his mature life as the head of the Lyceum that he actually published the treatises which survive, in addition to all the others, at least 130, that sadly don't. 
Now, this prolific output was facilitated by his sudden ability to devote himself full-time to intellectual labour of his choice. He did not have to run around um, chasing Macedonian adolescents. He found personal happiness, too, after years of widowhood with a woman named Herpilis from his old hometown of Stagora. Now, he didn't marry her, which suggests she may have been a slave or of non-citizen class, but he made extraordinarily generous provision for her in his will. He actually wrote, because she has been good to me, which brings a tear to my eye. And she fathered, uh, she, he fathered her son Nicomachus, to whom he addressed and dedicated his great Nicomachean ethics. I think Aristotle was repelled by the exhausting struggle going on in the court at Pella between Alexander's mother, Olympias, and the man who acted as regent for Alexander during his extended absences, Antipater. I think Aristotle must have been greatly relieved to be far away from the murderous infighting, emotional dramas, paranoia, sex, superstition, bizarre mystery cults which characterised Macedonian life in the palace. But the man in charge of Athens, on the other hand, was now Lycurgus, a wise and respected elderly statesman who deeply respected Aristotle. Although he was one of the influential Athenians who'd opposed the Macedonian conquest, Lycurgus maintained the peace, imposing laws strictly, and protected Aristotle because he was also a former pupil of Plato. Right? So the philosophers stuck together and tried to ignore all the politics. Now, in order to write and supervise the flood of books which issued from the Lyceum, Aristotle needed to call on his considerable skill in putting words and arguments together in cogent prose. The art or science, since the Greek word techne is translated by both English words of rhetoric, it produced one of his greatest books, The Rhetoric, entails persuading people through speech and language. It's a power which he says bestows on any possessor a huge capacity to persuade people to agree with you or at least to consider your arguments as set out in the most persuasive and lucid manner. In the first chapter of his famous treatise, which is still read as an instruction manual both by politician speechwriters and by students on essay writing courses in American liberal arts colleges, he uses his favourite word dunamis to define rhetoric, power, potential. It gives the individuals who acquire it potency in their lives. And in fact, Lycurgus, the peace-loving ruler, was himself an outstanding orator. After Aristotle's death, Theophrastus became head of the Lyceum, added to its buildings and land. From then until 86 BCE, the school flourished as a prestigious university for young men between 18 and 21 who came from all, all over the Mediterranean and Black Sea worlds. It was run by a long succession of philosophers. But the Roman general Sulla, when he sacked Athens in 86, ruined the Lyceum complex, even chopped down those beautiful trees. The Lyceum did recover eventually, and the philosophy-loving emperor Marcus Aurelius reappointed teachers to it in the 2nd century CE. The Aristotelian school mainly flourished for the next three centuries, though, away from Athens in other centres of intellectual activity. And if there was still a functioning lyceum in Athens in 529, 
it would have been closed down by the Christian emperor, Justinian. But what happened to Aristotle after he founded the Lyceum? In 323, Alexander, king of Macedonia, and now much of the known world, died in Babylon more than a 1,000 miles away from Athens. Rumours abounded that he'd been murdered by one or more of his ambitious generals. I'm sure he was. These rumours will have reached Aristotle. The death of his former student will have shaken him profoundly. It may have made it much easier also for his enemies to persecute him without reprisals. And it was his beliefs in regard to the gods which came into focus now. Aristotle was no atheist, but he did think that God took no interest in human affairs. He was the unmoved mover who you have to work out your own ethics. You will not get punished by an extraterrestrial force. Aristotle was committed to explaining the world as he and other humans apprehend it scientifically without recourse to any theological, mystical or supernatural explanations. This made him particularly vulnerable to prosecution on religious grounds. When Alexander died, Aristotle's enemies seized their opportunity. Although he wasn't even himself a Macedonian, he'd long been identified with Macedonian, North Greek supremacy. When the Athenians heard about the premature death of Alexander, those who'd never accepted Macedonian interference in their affairs saw their opportunity to rebel. Hostilities were increased by hunger. There was a huge grain shortage at the time. There was a fiery debate in the Democratic Assembly with the poorer citizens urging rebellion against Macedonian rule. It was decided to go to war. And this must have alarmed Aristotle. He and his family were in serious danger in Athens. And at some point during the momentous year after Alexander's death, he left Athens for his mother's ancestral city of Chalcida on the island of Evia, which was um, a bit away from Athens and he could be protected better by the Macedonians. He died there in 323. He must have been anxious. He must have missed the life of the Lyceum and the friendship of Theophrastus desperately. The persecution, prosecution of Aristotle by some top Athenians took a similar form to that posed to Socrates eight decades previously. Aristotle was denounced for impiety by the, before the court of the Areopagus by an Athenian priest named Eurymedon. The main charge was he held beliefs in conflict with the Athenians' religion. There was also a rumour that his memorials to his dead wife, Pythias, and his dead friend, Hermias, he was very keen on statues and pictures of his dead friends uh, and composed poems in their honour. He didn't believe in an afterlife, but he very much liked to remember his beloved dead. And that seems to have been seen as somehow slightly sinister, his response to Eurymedon's accusation was not to court execution, as Socrates had done. Socrates, not many people know this, could just have gone off and lived somewhere else. He had the opportunity just to take exile and stay alive, but he preferred to stay and martyr himself. We can differ on the reasons why. Aristotle, on the other hand, was not the kind of mind to give, man to give up on life. He disapproved of suicide, he thought it was um, uh, an attack on uh, a member of the community. He saw it as a form of murder. 
that if you're a member of the community, you owe something to everybody else in the community, and in depriving them of you, he actually saw it as a social crime. It's quite an interesting position. I'm not saying I agree, but that was his position. He took refuge at the estate with a garden, a cottage belonging to his mother's family in Calchis. He's said to have drawn a direct parallel between his own plight and that which Socrates had faced, saying, I will not allow the Athenians to commit a second crime against philosophy. One source, a Byzantine encyclopedia known as the Suda, um, even claims that he did commit suicide by taking home Locke, but this is a late novelistic invention. He'd actually long suffered from a stomach complaint, probably cancer. The more prosaic likelihood is that he died of it. The stress of his Euban exile and isolation from the Lyceum friends may have exacerbated a pre-existing medical condition. And one moving fragment which he wrote towards his end of his life as he was dying in Calciva says that he enjoys the old myths and stories increasingly the older and more isolated I become. On the other hand, Calchis was and still is a healthful, breezy seaside town, which the philosopher was, would have been fond. It was his mother's home, hometown, and he probably visited many times. It's cheering to think, in his last illness, he would have taken his last walks along the long, sunny promenade, perhaps with her Pillis and his two children, Nicomachus by her and Pythias by his first wife, to discuss how best to face the prospect of death and their future without him. But the death tradition, with most resonance in cultural history, actually claims that he committed suicide, that he did commit suicide, either by taking poison or leaping into the waves of these very narrow straits at Euripus between Euboea and the Greek mainland to drown himself. The suicide, which is apocryphal, was allegedly motivated by frustration that he couldn't scientifically understand the violent tides there. There are tides. They reverse violently in direction every six hours, and they cause spectacular churning and eddying directly beneath that bridge that is now there, connecting the island to Boeotia around Thebes. Now, this tidal phenomenon is bizarre. I've seen it. It was partially solved in an article published by a Greek astronomer named Dimitrios Eginitis in 1929, but it's still not fully understood. And I went to see people in the Greek Navy to talk about it. But Aristotle's suicide never happened. It was an invention of his early Christian detractors. He posed a huge problem to the early Christians who recognised his intellectual importance and tried to convert him into a Christian, as opposed to a material science, scientist. And they fabricated a deathbed conversion that at the last minute he said, uh, since I cannot uh, understand the Europus, let the Europus take me. I now believe there must be a God who intervenes in human life. This is a tradition invented by the early Christians several hundred years after his death. Actually, similar rumours exist about most famous atheists and agnostics, uh, including Darwin, Bertrand Russell's, and even Christopher Hitchens. Now, the place of his burial is not known. Some said his remains were claimed by the Stagorites, were interned near that craggy northern Greek hometown. 
From time to time, Greek archaeologists claim a tomb they've excavated near the Stagora marketplace was originally Aristotle's. This happens every two years. Some Greek archaeologist makes a quick buck by claiming he's found Aristotle's tomb. The medieval travelogue of Sir John Mandeville, first published in 1499, states that he had seen a tomb and a Christianized hero cult in Stagora. 1499, in this country was Aristotle born, in a city that men Clepi Stagora, a little from the city of Thrace. At Stagora lieth Aristotle, there is an altar upon his tomb. There men make great feasts for him every year, as if he were a saint. And at his altar they hold him their great councils and their assemblies. And they hope that through inspiration of God and him, they will have better wisdom and counsel. The Anglo-American archaeologist Sir Charles Waldstein, on the other hand, claimed in the early 1890s to have excavated the tomb of Aristotle, complete with his personal writing stylus and the portrait statuettes in Kalkiva. Now, I'm not convinced by either claim. What I recommend and I prefer to do is celebrate this great philosopher in that place where he lived while he accomplished his great life's work, which is at the site of the Athenian Lyceum. Thank you very much. <laughs>